Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, Britain becomes the first country to launch a mass inoculation campaign with a vaccine for COVID-19. Nurses rally for their rights in New Rochelle, New York. And President-elect Joe Biden taps a, rest- a retired four-star general to lead the Pentagon. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest work at independent.org. We hosted the Monday edition of the WBAI Evening News for the past couple of years. Last month, we moved into this new one-hour time slot and are delighted to be with you this evening. In the news, earlier today, Britain became the first country to launch a mass inoculation campaign with a vaccine for COVID-19. It currently has 800,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is being provided first to select people aged 80 and over. This is British Prime Minister Boris Johnson during a visit to a hospital that was providing inoculations. It's very, very exciting just to talk to Lynn uh, about the vaccine that she's just taken. She's, she's 81 and really very moving to hear her say that she's doing it for Britain. And, and that's exactly right, because she's protecting herself, but she's also helping to protect the entire country. And across the, the whole of the UK uh, this morning, that is happening in all uh, in Scotland, Northern Ireland, in Wales, uh, in England. People are having the vaccine for the first time, and it will gradually make a huge, huge difference. But I stress gradually, because we haven't defeated this virus yet. And it's very important for people to understand that uh, the virus is, alas, still rising. In In the wake of the news from Britain, President-elect Joe Biden announced today that his administration would oversee the injection of 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots within his first 100 days as president. There have been more than 1.5 million confirmed deaths worldwide due to COVID-19, including more than 285,000 here in the United States. COVID-19 infection rates continue to climb across New York State. However, at the Montefiore Hospital in New Rochelle, New York, just north of the city, nurses find themselves locked out of work by management as the two sides negotiate a new contract. The nurses rallied outside the hospital earlier today and urged management to come to its senses. We are the enemy. We are nurses. You need to fight this. We need to work together. The enemy is coming. The second surge of COVID is coming and we need to work together. Please stop the madness and settle this, please. In other local COVID news, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is warning that indoor dining could be shut down again in New York City as early as next week due to rising COVID infections. Change their guidance on Friday. As the facts change, your strategy should change. I don't have a problem with that. But they offered additional guidance on indoor dining, especially, and uh, we're going to follow their guidance. If after five days, if the hospitalization rate doesn't uh, stabilize in New York City, we're going to close indoor dining. Cuomo is referring to guidance from the CDC. Meanwhile, a Staten Island bar owner who has defied COVID restrictions is out of jail on his own recognizance after running over a sheriff's deputy with his car and being slapped with 10 felony charges. Video released yesterday showed Danny Presti driving his car forward with the sheriff's deputy clinging to the hood of the car. Presti's lawyer says the incident was, quote, a political ambush. In national news, retired four-star General Lloyd Austin is expected to be nominated for Secretary of Defense, according to sources close to President-elect Biden. Austin will be the first African-American to hold the post. Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, Women for Peace, said General Austin's lucrative ties to the military-industrial complex are troubling. 
It's good that Biden didn't pick Michelle Flournoy, who had a world view that U.S. military force could be used anywhere in the world. But the pick of a general is a bad precedent. And then somebody who is on the board of Raytheon while it is dropping bombs on uh, the Yemeni people is invested in an equity firm with uh, heavy investments in the military industry. Uh, Those are not good signs either. We'll be talking more with Medea Benjamin about Biden's foreign policy and the people he is choosing to execute it in the second half of the show. In Columbus, Ohio, the family of Casey Goodson is demanding answers after a white police officer shot and killed Goodson, a 23-year-old black man, on Friday as he prepared to enter his home. Law enforcement said he was carrying a gun. His family and activists say he was carrying a sandwich and was shot three times in the back. In Los Angeles, new district attorney George Gascon was sworn in yesterday and immediately announced a sweeping package of reforms. His office will no longer seek the death penalty, will eliminate the use of cash bail in many cases, and won't file for sentencing enhancements. Low-level crimes associated with poverty, addiction, mental illness, and homelessness will be diverted to health services, and his office will review cases in which lengthy prison terms were, quote, inconsistent with sentencing and charging policies. More than 10 million people live in Los Angeles County, the most populous county in the United States. And finally, today marks the 40th anniversary of the assassination of former Beatle John Lennon outside his home on Manhattan's Upper West Side by a mentally deranged admirer. In that pre-internet era, it was sportscaster Howard Cosell who first broke the news of Lennon's shocking death during a Monday night football broadcast. To say it, remember this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous perhaps of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. BBC. BBC journalist Tom Brook covered the crowds that gathered outside Lennon's home 40 years ago tonight, and he was on hand again today when Lennon admirers gathered in Strawberry Fields in Central Park to play some of Lennon's songs. The heartening thing is that today there are so many young people into Lennon's music who weren't alive at the time he died. And that that is, you know, a wondrous thing to, to behold. And I think Lennon's music, his words and his actions, I mean, he was a pacifist. He was targeted by the Nixon administration here. Uh, for deportation because of his anti-Vietnam War views. I mean, I, I, I think his messages of peace and his music does really bring solace to people right now, bearing in mind what we're going through, this humongous pandemic, economic dislocation, and uh, also other very strong currents in the culture like calls for racial justice. We will be back with our, our first guest after this short break. was imagined by John Lennon, who was killed 40 years ago today here in New York City. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our uh, latest uh, reports at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. 
Turning to our first segment, no group of people has done more to save lives in the COVID-19 pandemic and at greater risk to, to themselves than nurses. In New Rochelle, New York, just north of the city, gratitude is in short supply for nurses at the Montefiore Hospital where they find themselves locked out of their jobs due to an ongoing labor dispute with management. With a, with a second wave of the pandemic bearing down on the New York City area, how is this possible? To fill us in, we are joined this evening by Kathy Santoayema, leader of the New Rochelle Nurses. Kathy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Certainly. So, uh, just just for starters, can you can you lay out what is uh, going on at the at the hospital in in New Rochelle and and what the uh, current situation is? Yes. Um, so we've been in contract negotiations for close to two years. It'll be two years in two weeks, and um, we've gotten nowhere. And the basic ask for us for the new contract is it all leads back to staffing. Um, we, we definitely are understaffed, and we are definitely paid lower than most hospitals, I think all hospitals in this area. So um, that's we're trying to get a better contract and um, trying to retain nurses who have left by the droves uh, to, um, you know, so, so that's why we ended up giving the hospital a 10-day uh, notice that we were going on an unfair labor strike for two days, and we told them we would be back to work at on Thursday at 7 a.m., and this was all, you know, for the sake of our patients and our community. So when we went back to work on Thursday, um, most of us, many of us, were locked out. And how is the hospital functioning if it's locking out a part of its uh, nursing staff? Yeah, they actually um, let in um, some of the emergency room nurses, a lot of the ICU nurses, but not everybody. And then um, they actually uh, cohorted all the patients on one big unit, uh, including the COVID patients, and uh, locked down other units. Um, And then every day as patients are rising, they're calling in, you know, another nurse, another nurse. And we still have nurses that are locked out. My, I am one of the nurses that's locked out. Mm. And how long have you worked at the hospital? Forty-three years. My goodness. And and uh, how severe was the situation in New Rochelle last spring at the height of the pandemic? I imagine the hospital was we, very. We were. Um, they called us Ground Zero. We were the epicenter. Um, we practically. I think we did. We started it all. We became a completely COVID hospital. We took care of, we were full COVID for months. And then, um, and we never had no COVID patients. We we always had COVID patients, but, you know, of course, over the summer, it decreased greatly. And um, now it's, we're starting to get patients again with COVID. And right. it was rough. I mean, yeah. it was a really rough, rough time. I mean, nobody is going to ever forget this. This is like something I've been a nurse for 43 years, and this is absolutely like nothing we have ever even come close to. Um, It was really, really hard on us, and, of course, it was really hard on our patients and our community. And what reason is management giving uh, for uh, for stiff-arming you all? I mean, after all the work you've done in in the past year in particular. They're saying that when we went on strike, they did not go and get um, trial. They didn't get agency nurses to cover. What they did was transfer most of our patients out to other hospitals. And um, then now they're saying it's because of low volume. But in fact, it really isn't. Our nurses were inside the last couple of days with really high ratio of nurse to patients. Um, patients to nurse, excuse me. So um, that, um, you know, it could have been all avoided if they had just opened up everything and, you know, we would have been back to normal. As a matter of fact, I work on, they closed the COVID floor, which was really very strange to me, the floor, the floor that houses um, our COVID patients, and they put them on this regular, med- this red- regular medical surgical floor. So my floor, which is an orthopedic surgical floor, which is – 
totally away from COVID patients at this time. In the spring, of course, we were COVID too. Um, it, you know, it's, it's like considered, they call it clean. You know, you have to have a, very, a certain criteria to be admitted to the floor. You can't have any, you know, infections or anything. But they put our post-op patients right on the floor that house COVID patients, which to me was very odd to do. And it, it really breaks protocols, you know. Yeah, I, I was wondering, are there are there state regulations about this? Is this something that uh, ought to get the hospital in trouble because they're putting people's well, lives at risk? I mean, you know, I don't know. It's just we, we did report them to the Department of Health. And, um, you know, the patients, of course, were in, different, in separate isolated rooms, but it just was a very poor idea. You know, it, it really, the basic infection control rules, it seems to have broken. You know, normally, um, when the hospital is normally running, we would never have our patients with those patients. It's just, just not done. So, I mean, it just seems like they were um, maybe retaliating against us or trying to actually teach us a lesson by not opening up all the floors. Right. And, and uh, the nurses at your hospital, you all are members of the uh, New York State Nurses Association, uh, NYSNA, and Correct. you had that rally uh, outside the hospital today. Um, yes. Can you, I guess, talk about w- what your plans are going forward to, to try to... Um, well. As of now, um, well, we are going to negotiate on Thursday, but our main thing is for everybody to get back to work. And as of now, I hear they will be opening up the COVID floor shortly because we're being, um, it's it's a mess. They they said it's really busy. It's crazy. Um, So they're starting to call the the nurses that work on that floor in tonight. And I mean, I We'll be opening it up shortly because, you know, the, the ratio is very high right now. Right. And uh, we'll have to uh, go here in a minute. But uh, is there any final word you want to share with our listeners as far as uh, how they can uh, uh, support you all or anything that uh, people can do to, to be in solidarity? Uh, we certainly appreciate well, what our I mean, I mean, it's just it's just that it's not not it's just not right that they did this to us. I mean, what they do is they give, they spend millions and millions of dollars on billboards and advertisements and all kinds of things that, you know, are not us and not patients. So, I mean, that's just not the right thing to do. And, I mean, we, we were very, it was very nice today because the community did come out to support us and we had a lot of politicians there to support us. So, I mean, you know, we're, you know, we've called the governor's office and I, I don't know. Now they're starting to open up things. So hopefully that will continue. Great. Well, it's, it's, it's really good that y'all are continuing to make your voices heard. And uh, Kathy uh, Santo Emmett, thank you so much for joining us on the Independent News Hour today. Thank you very much for having me. Certainly. Alrighty. In our next segment, when we come back in a moment, we'll uh, talk with a Black Lives Matter organizer uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, Black Lives Matter is not in uh, at the top of the headlines these days, but uh, organizing certainly continues, and we'll hear about that. That was Power to the People by John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give number two wbai.org again the pledge line is 516-620-3602 you can make a one-time donation or better yet sign up as a wbai buddy for ten dollars per month or more and help keep wbai 
and shows like this on the air. I'll share that information again at the end of the show. So turning to our second segment, uh, while the pandemic and the election uh, uh, continued uh, are dominating the headlines at the moment, Black Lives Matter organizing uh, continues. And we're going to be joined in a moment by uh, uh, organizer uh, Jess. Uh, uh, she's a um, Brooklyn community organizer in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement who works with the No Name Group and Brooklyn for Black Lives on community organizing initiatives initiatives and protest actions. Jess, are, are you there? I am. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the Independent News Hour. Thank you. Thank you for so much for having me. Certainly. I, uh, can you tell our listeners a, a little bit about your group and, and, and what y'all have uh, been doing recently? Uh, well, our group has been protesting uh, since the end of May when George Floyd was murdered, and um, it pretty much has been protesting actions and demonstrations. Um, I started with the No Name Group, which a lot of people who are in the activism and um, BLM organizing uh, circles are aware of. So if you know No Name, we are the group with No Name, but we have a name based on people calling us No Name. Um, right. But we we all gathered to to have a voice in in what was happening in this movement and in and in, in this country. Um, so from there, I met some other great strong organizing leaders in their own right, and we formed Brooklyn for Black Lives, where we focus most of our efforts in communities of color in Brooklyn. Um, and both groups um, have been heavily involved in mutual aid work for communities of color. And what mutual aid work is pretty much just self-starter community um, initiative work, where it's not so much dependent on, um, you know, city council members or any legislative um, entity. Uh, it's mostly community and grassroots led. And we we pretty much, we take the helm and we we empower the community to also be a part of that. And then the community from, from our guidance takes over and, and sustains itself. Um, recently, we just put in a community fridge in uh, Crown Heights uh, with Brooklyn for Black Lives uh, with, with some support from the uh, No Name group. And uh, we were seeking to do more of that kind of work, you know, community cleanups, uh, different school drives and t- clothing drives, toy drives, food drives, things like that. So that's that's in a nutshell uh, who we are. Right, and 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 uh, how is the um, community in Crown Heights uh, responded to the to the fridge? Is it getting a lot of use? Actually, yeah, it is. It's actually gone pretty. It's been going pretty well. We we did a lot of like on the ground work um, in terms of you know just keeping our ears to the ground of like who would be able to help us. Um, who would be supporting um, the sustainability and, and maintenance of the fridge. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people in that area who are down to just be, you know, volunteer their time and effort to making sure that it's clean and that's well stocked and that it's, it's kept, um, it, it's kept up. Uh, so it's only been up there for about maybe a week and a half, I want to say now, and it's been fully stocked every day. Um, people come by and drop off food. We have, we have, refrigerator uh fridge keepers as we call them and they stop by and check on it and we have like our networks of of acquiring um good quality food to provide the fridge with so it's been pretty successful in this first week but you know we're we're trying to cover all our bases and and account for the outlying elements that might um affect the fridge negatively but uh so far it's been positive that's great, and and so the 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 a community fridge is placed on the sidewalk and and, and has an electrical hookup to somewhere nearby yeah. that keeps it functioning yeah. all the time. Is that how it works? So, so typically with community fridge work, you have to broker a relationship with um, a business like a bodega or some kind of shop that's okay. going to supply the electricity. Um, and so we did a lot of, like like I said, on the groundwork where we went from bodega to bodega to bodega um, and tried to get them to support. But a, a lot of times the apprehension uh, is 
is pretty much they don't like the idea of, you know, people who are unhoused coming up and being in front of their place of business. You know, they, they don't like that kind of um, that kind of audience and that kind of attention. And so we had to really, you know, drive the point that, hey, people who are unhoused shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't be ashamed of them or, or see them as a problem. They, they, this is there to help people, you know. Um, thankfully, we we have a relationship with Brooklyn Combine, which is a collective of really um, innovative lawyers and also just community members who focus a lot of their efforts in, in law, but also mentoring programs in, in different areas, arts and science. Um, and because they are uh, all black, they wanted to support an initiative that catered to the black community um, and acknowledged you know, food insecurity and the different lack of um, healthy food options that a lot of BIPOC communities, um, you know, don't have access to. Uh, so that's that's pretty much how it is um, sustained. It is outside of their business and it is on its uh, sidewalk adjacent. It's on the sidewalk. Um, and they have a power cord that runs from their office to the, um, to the fridge. Uh, but it's a pretty much its own little, its own little station. That's a little function. And and, and y'all are thinking of, of trying to open more community fridges uh, going forward. Yeah. So we, through our relationship with the Brooklyn Combine, who's hosting this fridge, we um, they connected us to someone who might be able to find us a location in the Brownsville, East New York area. Um, so we're looking into that, and hopefully, either the first or second week of January, we can put up another one. And our, our goal is to essentially do multiple in different neighborhoods of Brooklyn. So, you know, hopefully at one point we'll be able to put in, you know, maybe one or two more in Crown Heights or one or two more in Brownsville and, and in Flatbush and, and different areas in Brooklyn that really do need a community fridge and food pantry. Fantastic. And of course, you also do uh, protests and direct actions as well. And we had a reporter mm-hmm. at uh, one of your marches in November uh, where a, yes. a couple hundred people marched from the Barclay Center to Brooklyn Borough Hall. And she was yes. impressed uh, with the safe, safety protocols that you all employed and, and, and the care that mm-hmm. you all and forethought you all put into protecting everybody uh, who was in, participating in those marches. Uh, can you talk yes. a little bit about, uh, more about how you all approach, approach those situations? Uh, well, <clears throat> with the the with our group, uh, the group with no name or the unnamed group, no name group, however you want to call us, we have a um, we have essentially a protocol committee, a misconduct committee, that um, internally that we we try to acknowledge abusive situations and harmful situations that happen internally in the protesting space. Because as much as we like to keep each other safe, we do acknowledge that there are people within our space that do cause harm. Um, and our goal is to not be punitive in our response to that harm should we be made aware of it. Um, because we're not trying to reenact the carceral system because we're so vehemently against it. Um, so the protocols that we announced at the beginning of the march are based in that kind of harm. You know, if you if someone's being verbally abusive or physically abusive um, or socially abusive in some way, uh, you have every right to not be okay with that and, and to contact one of the organizers and let them know that something's going on. And we have our standard protocol of, you know, helping people out of harmful situations and just keeping an eye on the person that is um, identified as, as causing the harm. Uh, but we also cater to the person who is causing harm in, in, in the sense that we acknowledge that that person might be going through something and that they don't need to to necessarily be, uh, be also abused because that's what our our, um, our penal system does. It just abuses the abuser further and then tries to reinsert insert that abused person into society without any kind of rehabilitation. So we see this as a chance to, because we're fighting uh, the carceral system and because we're fighting police brutality, we're trying to form like our own safety measures within our community that aren't based in um, punitive abuse. Um, and so that that's pretty much 
the the notion behind our safety protocols. And then we have standards like physical safety in terms of your environment, you know, making sure that everybody is kept in a, in, in good pace when we're walking and, you know, everyone has a good perimeter around them so that their the cars and, and other bystanders of the march are not um, being harmed or causing harm. Um, we always have like a, a bunch of bikers kind of uh, act as a protective border uh, for our protests, and they do an amazing job. And they really are uh, putting themselves in harm's way because the police have actually attacked us a few times, and they, they go for our bikers. Um, so we we do as much as we can to protect people who come out to support what we're doing because the reality is what we're doing is very dangerous, and um, you can see that by the the the, the amount of um, police presence and abuse that we have experienced through the course of the BLM movement. Right, and of course, uh, as you know. Uh, defund the police has become a, a point of controversy, at least for some, in, in recent weeks mm-hmm. after the elections. Uh, some mm-hmm. saying that it's uh, too militant or, or uh, too too radical. And uh, one of those people who uh, was recently uh, criticizing defund the police uh, as, a, as a slogan or a, 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 a motto uh, was former President mm-hmm. Barack Obama uh, on his uh, okay. uh, book tour. And uh, yeah. we have we have a clip here uh, of uh, of President Obama. I, I think we can uh, roll here in a second, and I'll ask ask for your uh, thoughts about it. Okay, cool. You believe, as as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly. I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. Jess, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I This is so funny because I've had this conversation with members of my own family. <laughs> um, the problem that I see with uh, the defund the police slogan uh, from, from people whom I've conversed with is that it's too inflammatory. It's too radical of an idea. Um, and it just lets me know that people are scared to embrace it based on the language, and they want it to be in this nice little care package um, for them. And it, it's, 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 a, it's another form of coddling to the point of not actually doing anything. Um, I think inflammatory language can be very, very effective. Um, because if we, you know, back when Mark Rodney King was happening, no one was saying defund the police, but that's essentially what the the whole message was behind the pe- people rioting and people protesting was that the police needed to to incur some kind of change and radical change. But back then, the language wasn't there. And uh, so not much was done. You know, fast forward almost 30 years in the future here now, we're saying defund the police and people are actually listening because of that inflammatory language and given the history of what's been happening with police brutality in this country. Um, So I I, I just think it's a cop out when people say that, oh, it's too inflammatory or that it's not going to get you what you want. Actually, I think catering to people's sensibilities in this manner actually enables the system to be abusive because it's not really highlighting how serious this is. People are dying by the hands of police and you want to package the, you know, you want to package handling that in a careful way. No, they weren't careful with people's lives. So why do I need to be careful when I say that they need to be eradicated? Um, so I, I, I'm very, very against uh, this whole idea that defunding the police, uh, the terminology, why we're focusing on syntax, I don't know. The message is clear. Something needs to be done. Defunding the police needs to be done. And I'm an abolitionist, so abolish the police uh, is what our group is about. So, uh, yeah, I I'm, like, don't care for Barack Obama's argument and, he, you know, him as a president. I'm sure he he did some good, but there is a lot of things that um, people don't criticize him over. Um, And police brutality is one of them and and deportation and the the drone strikes and everything. There's a lot that I think he gets away with as a politician. 
um, that we right. don't readily criticize. <laughs> right. So we're going to have to go here in about uh, 30 seconds, but uh, last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, can mm-hmm. you let people, uh, let our listeners know uh, who are interested uh, how they could uh, get involved with or uh, help out yes. the No Name Group or Brooklyn for Black Lives in the work you're doing? Yes. Um, so if you'd like to reach out to us, you can always go to our Instagram. Um, our Instagram is at BK uh, number four BL um, on Instagram. And then we have BK Fridges, which is at BK Fridges. Um, and you can help out there and reach out to us. And if you'd like to be coordinated with, with the fridge effort, you can. If you want to be coordinated with something else, you also can. Um, if you want to reach out to the no-name group, we, we remain anonymous in, in that we don't have a uh, place to go. Uh, but you can go to, uh, on Instagram anyway, you can go to americaontrial.com for the no-name group and all the things that they do there. And you can also reach out to me. Uh, my Instagram is at J-E-S-D-A-B. Um, at J-E-S-X-D-A-V. Sorry about that. Um, Jess Davis. If you just put Jess Davis in there, you'll find it. Um, And you can always just approach me and we can have a conversation. Fantastic. Well, uh, Jess, uh, from the No Name Group, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Of course. Thank you. Okay. All righty. So when we come back with our next uh, segment. We'll be talking with one of America's foremost peace activists about Joe Biden's foreign policy and the people he's hiring to carry it out. One, two, three, four. That was Give Peace a Chance by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In our uh, next segment here, we're going to look at Joe Biden's foreign policy and the people he's choosing to execute it with, with one of America's great peace activists. Um, Unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, Biden's uh, uh, hires seem to be people who are more of the mindset of uh, give war a chance. But we're going to explore that more in a moment. Uh, before we before we get to Medea Benjamin, I want to let people know about a Zoom webinar that uh, the Independent and several other groups are hosting on Saturday afternoon, starting at two o'clock. Uh, Medea will be one of our uh, participants, along with Norman Solomon and retired Army Major uh, Danny Surgeon, who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and has since become a fierce critic of our nation's uh, forever wars. I'll be moderating the discussion, which is being presented by the Independent, Code Pink, Women for Peace, Peace and Planet News, New York City, Veterans for Peace, and Brooklyn for Peace. So this is going to be a really uh, exciting, informative event. Uh, You can go to independent.org and register there for Saturday's webinar, uh, which again starts at 2 o'clock. And if you don't use Zoom, you can also follow the event live on the Independent's Facebook page or watch it later as a recording. Uh, so right now, uh, we'll have a little bit of a preview of Saturday's discussion as we're joined by Medea Benjamin of Code Pink Women for Peace. Medea, thank you for joining us on the show this evening. Hey, nice to be with you. Yes. So uh, let's start, uh, first of all, with uh, the latest news of uh, Lloyd Austin's uh, nomination uh, to be Secretary of Defense, a former four-star general. Uh, who retired in 2016 uh, and will be the first uh, African-American uh, to lead the Defense part- Department if he's uh, confirmed. Uh, do you want to uh, add to anything you, to what you said in, you, in the clip in the headlines, your thoughts about uh, the appointment of a former general and, and somebody with a lot of ties to uh, 
military industrial complex? Well, it's the reaction been coming out around Austin. There are people like Rosa Brooks, who was cheerleading for Flournoy, uh, who said, we shouldn't confirm the general. Uh, you don't want to call a civilian. And then you look back on a, a long piece she wrote years ago when she just said the opposite. It just said, doesn't matter. Uh, it's their policy that matter, not whether a general or not. And that might have been important in the 40s when it was instituted, but it's not important anymore. Uh, and uh, it is something that is because Medea, your phone's uh, fading in and out a little bit. Is there anything you can do to get a stronger? The phone is fading in and out. You were for a moment, but oh, let's better now. That, that, yeah, that's a little bit better. So you, you were you were saying that that. There were people that were rooting for a first uh, woman Secretary of Defense, and who was even uh, more of a hawk than uh, the person Joe Biden chose. Yes, and they were also using now uh, against Austin the fact that he's a general. When you look back at the same person, Rosa Brooks, uh, and she was saying earlier, years earlier that it didn't matter if it was a general, uh, that was not important. Um, and my to say that the, um, the issue about whether he's a, a general, a, a difference or not, um, there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, and that it's interesting that Joe Biden just wrote an op-ed in The Atlantic today where he came out saying that one of the most things that the military will have to now is help get this vaccine all over the country and that Austin has um, experience in uh, the most uh, complicated logistical um, operations ever carried out in recent history, which is the withdrawal of tens of thousands of troops from Iraq. And so he can do this job well with the vaccine. I found that quite interesting how he's um, putting the, the vaccine on the front burner of what we need to do, including the military. What is this? I mean, normally uh, countries that rely on the military to do uh, a little bit of everything are, are, uh, you know, con- countries that have a lot of a lot of problems. Uh, we pay a lot of taxes in this country. You would uh, you would think we we would have other agencies that could carry out uh, an inoculation campaign, and that we wouldn't have to rely on the military. Sure, but I'd rather have the military getting vaccinations out quickly and efficiently than killing people elsewhere. So perhaps it's good to distract. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, uh, I mean, looking beyond uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, so many of the app- uh, appointees that we, we've seen uh, come down the pipeline from Biden in the national security sphere have a lot of ties to the military industrial complex and uh, all sorts of consulting gigs and investments. And uh, can you talk about that? It, 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 it seems to have very much become normalized at this point. Yes, and before we move to the broader cabinet, let's just look at the options that Biden was considering for Secretary of Defense. Uh, It seemed there were three people, Michelle Flournoy on the board of Booz Allen Hamilton, Jay Johnson on the board of Lockheed Martin, and then uh, General Austin on the board of Raytheon. So these were the three, quote, choices that we had. In addition, each one of those had intimate ties with military industries. And the same can be for the other picks, for example, Anthony Blinken, be if confirmed the Secretary of State, co-founded with Michelle Flournoy this consulting group called West Exec Advisors, 
and touted how they had the inside knowledge, the executive office, and would you have their customers who were mostly really know, but who wanted something from the Pentagon, and we don't know because they sign non-disclosure agreements with their clients. Uh, So this is very important when the confirmation hearings happen for people like Anthony Blinken is to demand to know who their clients are. In addition to working for military contractors, uh, Silicon Valley companies that are developing more high-tech weaponry and uh, uh, um, uh, spy drones, kind of um, robotic and artificial intelligence. Um, There is also foreign countries like Saudi Arabia and like United Arab Emirates that have been doing business with these consulting firms money to the things run by these um, people when they're out of office. And so it just goes round and round and round. Uh, Unfortunately, we're getting the next round of people who have been very uh, much benefiting, profiting personally from fossil fuel companies, weapons companies. They're being recycled into the Biden team. Right. Well, Biden, you know, said it in his first uh, his first uh, campaign fundraiser, and nothing would fundamentally change. Uh, I want to take a moment here uh, to uh, listen to a clip from Anthony Blinken, uh, Biden's uh, nominee to be the next uh, Secretary of State. He's uh, served Biden in various uh, capacities over the years. And uh, this is uh, Anthony Blinken uh, talking about his stepfather's uh, story of American benevolence at the end of World War II. And um, it's a a very uh, heartwarming story in one way, but I find the way that Blinken almost weaponizes it to be uh, very troubling. And I want to talk about that after we come back from listening to this clip. And my late stepfather, Samuel Pizarro, he was one of 900 children in his school in Bialystok, Poland, but the only one to survive the Holocaust after four years in concentration camps. At the end of the war, he made a break from a death march into the woods in Bavaria. From his hiding place, he heard a deep rumbling sound. It was a tank, but instead of the Iron Cross, he saw painted on its side a five-pointed white star. He ran to the tank. The hatch opened. An African-American GI looked down at him. He got down on his knees and said the only three words that he knew in in English that his mother had taught him before the war. God bless America. So there, so there it is, the uh, Anthony Blinken's uh, origin story, and of course he's played a, a, a leading role in, uh, along with others, in, in encouraging the intervention in Libya that ended disastrously, uh, and uh, expresses regrets that the U.S. didn't intervene more in Syria. Uh, uh, Medea, can you talk a little bit about this on, on the sort of the liberal end of the national security state? There's this uh, doctrine of responsibility to protect that emerged in the years after the Cold War, first during the Clinton administration, and how officials like Tony Blinken and Michelle Flournoy and others have wielded it and uh, you know used it as a logic for intervention that's different than the, the sort of more revenge-minded uh, um, salesmanship of war we get from the right wing, but the the uh, outcomes are often very similar. Yes, at heart, it's still part of the imperial mindset. Uh, it's just framing it in a different way. To have Samantha and Susan Rice uh, known for humanitarian intervention. Uh, then we have Blinken. I remember Blinken uh, when he was a key aide to Biden in the foreign. Uh, relations committee of the Senate, they were talking about dividing Iraq to three parts. And really, the U.S. had the right to not only invade, uh, but to reconfigure Iraq uh, into U.S. uh, uh, a vision uh, of how we wanted that country to look. 
of course, that never happened. And what happened was a disaster in the U.S. unleashing this sectarian horror in Iraq and a U.S. really responsible for the creation of ISIS. So no matter how it's framed, still U.S. intervention has only resulted in death and destruction and horror for the victims of this intervention. And I think we should be very worried about uh, Anthony Blinken and other members of the team that are coming in. On the other hand, we should be heartened that it's a different time, that uh, Biden seems to understand that there is a desire for ending these wars and understands that number one priority is the pandemic and hopefully understands the severity of the climate crisis. Um, I worry about his rhetoric and those he brings with him when it comes to China and being uh, very tough about how they're going to deal with China, which is really a justification for a new Cold War, uh, even increased military spending, and it is very dangerous. So that is something that we have to really work on to stop them from us into conflict with China and instead cooperate on the pandemic and the climate crisis and other areas where we need global cooperation. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink Women for Peace, thank you so much for joining us on Independent a news hour, and we look forward to talking with you more on Saturday during the uh, the big uh, Zoom webinar event that the Indy and other groups are uh, co-hosting that you'll be a part of. Wonderful. I look forward to talking to you then. All right. Thank you, Medea. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So we're, uh, we're just about uh, going to wrap up the show here. I uh, want to uh, give a special shout-out and thanks to Amba Gagarian, Sue Brisk, and Kenneth Lopez for their help with today's show. And please remember to give generously to WBEI and help keep shows like this on the air, 516-620-3602. Become a BAI buddy for $10 per month or more. And, again, with the uh, webinar on Saturday, you can go to independent.org and uh, register for that, and we'll see you then. And we'll also be back same time next week with this show. Bye-bye.